these other women seeing her, and I think there was a touch of, yes, she was the addict and loved a beautiful thing, but I also think there was a touch of revenge, slightly, of, you see now, you know, I can have whatever I want. And yet, what was marvellous, she did have this fabulous taste, but it was a bit nuts. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Welcome back to If Jewels Could Talk. This week, one of Napoleon Bonaparte's famous hats has gone on display in Hong Kong at Bonhams prior to being auctioned. The reserve, 100 to 150,000 pounds, but it's thought this hat will raise over a million. Such is the interest in the legacy of Napoleon Bonaparte and his empress, Josephine. You might remember a few episodes ago, we talked about Mary, Queen of Scots's shopping habit. And today you are going to hear that we have another massive jewellery shopaholic on our hands. So this week, we thought it was the perfect time to take a look into their legacy, particularly in their jewelled legacy and the brilliant glittering array of jewels that they amassed throughout their union. I'm delighted to have two experts on the subject joining me from Paris, Natasha Fraser Cavassoni, the Paris-based luxury expert and author, whose books include Chanel Fashion, Monsieur Dior, Vogue on Yves Saint Laurent, and Chaumet's Tiaras, and will be joined by the historian Pierre Bronder, head of heritage at the Fondation Napoleon. He's the award-winning author of 15 books on the Napoleonic period, including a biography of Josephine. He's curated several exhibitions devoted to Napoleon, most recently Napoleon Une Histoire Extraordinaire for Chaumet in Paris. The pieces that we'll be talking about are drawn from the historical collection of Maison Chaumet, and others are to be found in cultural institutions, including the Fondation Napoleon, the Musée du Louvre, Château de Fontainebleau, the Musée National des Châteaux de Malmaison, the Musée Masséna in Nice. Please be in touch if you'd like any more information about any of the objects we talk about. And for the purposes of this podcast, we've translated Pierre's words into English. So now I want to welcome Natasha and thank her for joining us. And welcome, Pierre. Thank you, too, for joining us from Paris. Everyone thinks about Marie Antoinette as the the arch-profligate queen, Um, but Marie Antoinette's jewel box was too small for Empress Josephine, who, when she died in 1814, left 270 glittering perreurs, too many even to be housed in her impressive vast bronze and gilt cabinet inlaid with mother of pearl with 30 drawers and secret locks, which is the size of a small wardrobe which now resides in the Louvre. One inventory dated 1811 assessed her jewels as worth over 5 million francs. So Pierre, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about her early life on the island of Martinique where she was raised until the age of 16. So we have an idea of just how far Josephine Rose from her humble beginnings. Alors, Josephine née en 1763, effectivement, Josephine was born in 1763 in Martinique. Her parents had a large sugarcane plantation, and when she was young, she lived in the heart of a sugar farm in Martinique, where the sugar is exploited. The mansion was ravaged by a hurricane, and then Josephine moved to the heart of the sugar plantation. Her mother was somewhat industrious and inclined to the exploitation of sugar but her father was someone who was known at court, at Versailles. Josephine's father gave her a taste of Versailles, had a taste for pomp, pageantry and sumptuous things. Her father tried to keep her happy. It was him who was going to be the person who in some way admired Josephine. So the role model for Josephine is her father. She was married by a combination of circumstances. It was her sister first who was to marry the Viscount, Beauharnais, 
But once the marriage certificate arrived in Martinique, her sister died of tuberculosis. In fact, Josephine, who was second, was designated to marry the Viscount Beauharnais just before her 17th birthday, on the continent in France. Otherwise, Josephine would have remained in Martinique. One thing to add here is that there was an event where she received a prediction from one of her friends, who was a clairvoyant, who told her that with her second husband, she would be much more than a queen. It was a prediction that she would keep and that will be right about Josephine. So, Napoleon, Pierre, was uh, determined to make his court the most glittering in Europe. And I think he thought if he and Josephine appeared in gold and jewels, the populace would pay tribute to him. And I wondered if you could just give us a little taste of some of these um, objects that illustrate the sumptuousness or, and the grand nature of this life they created together. Napoleon conceived pomp in all its aspects. So all the sectors of luxury, craftsmanship, from tapestry, goldsmithing, marquetry, jewellery, and of course the artistic dimension, the sculptural arts, paintings, everything was used to the maximum of its resources to develop a splendour in all its aspects. We will see that there is nothing left aside, as always with Napoleon. It was a global offensive that concerned absolutely all the arts and craftsmen and artists of the time, without exclusions. So is there a particular piece of furniture that signifies how they chose to live? I think there's one with locks and keys and drawers and that she received letters every day from Napoleon. Yes, of course. There is this piece of furniture, for example, made by Bienet, which was completed in the empire style of the time. This desk is indeed a clever arrangement, where you can slide letters through a rather discreet slot, and then one can recover, thanks to a small hidden key, which awakens a sealed lock, which opens a compartment. And so one can conceal a letter in an elegant way. Napoleon can hide his correspondence and take it away, or to leave it and get back to it whenever he wanted. It is something very elegant, which reflects the empire. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of furniture for his diaries, which has this neoclassical style. It goes with this movement of youth and regeneration, which was something very important at the time as well. So by the time um, Josephine met Napoleon, she'd been living in Paris, she'd been married. Um, she was still, though, relatively unsophisticated, not really used to courtly life. She was divorced. She had bad teeth, as you said, she was brought up on the sugar plantation, she'd sucked too much sugar cane. And I just wondered what it was that you felt that really captivated Napoleon. What was it that Josephine had, Pierre, that really captivated him? It is said that indeed Josephine wasn't the most beautiful woman of her time, but she undeniably possessed a charm, a charm rather difficult to define, because obviously we don't have any photos or videos. She exists in paintings, of course, but she had such a strong influence on society just by her very own personality. It's difficult today because we don't have any recordings, for example, but we know that her voice was very caressing. It is said that her servants always approached the doors to hear the sound of her voice because it was a sound that was so pleasant and would rest your soul and you would feel a bit better. You have someone who was very gentle and kind, like that of sweetness, always fashionable, of course, but always right, a very sweet, very soothing for this young general, Napoleon, who obviously is someone who has a strong character, but who at the same time is very anxious, even for the face of the challenge. Josephine is someone who reassures and consoles. And he was, Napoleon, we know, was fiercely ambitious. Do you think Josephine had that same ambition and confidence? Do you think at least for a while their personalities really matched each other? Yes, yes, of course. We can say that those two people were extremely ambitious, but not for the same thing. The important thing is that Napoleon wants to be the king and she the queen. So it's a good thing that they can join forces to achieve a supreme power. But Josephine's ambition has always been put aside, but it is at least as important. She dreamed of being this big influencer. She wanted to be the queen of society, whatever the political status. If I may say so, Josephine does not necessarily aspire to a particular political regime, no matter what. Josephine is to be at the centre of attention, through society, through her tastes, through botany. In fact, Josephine also wants to reign by her personality, passions and her influence on society, not by politics, which is the case of Napoleon. <laughs> 
This alliance is perfect. If I may say so, her relationship to others was much more developed than Napoleon. She wants to be the person to influence and to command others. But she is someone very sociable and who wants to reign in society. And that's what makes her very different from Napoleon. Josephine is not a solitary person who wants to win in the middle of everything, which is less the case of Napoleon, who has a more assertive character, more political and more military, of course. So, I guess, Natasha, she channeled some of that ambition into making herself this supreme, fashionable figure. Um, and I wondered if you could tell me a little about how she went about that and where do you think that her sort of sense of impeccable taste came from? I think she was born with an eye. Was she? I do think, I really do. I think if you see everything, what she had was fantastic confidence. And because of what had happened to her young, she had that Parisian's gift of adapting. And that's why, if you want, Paris remains the capital of the world, capital of fashion, because it adapts. And she really knew about that. She had took a few knocks from that first marriage, and people. She realised the way she was going to be. But I think she really had a sense. She had also that Parisian thing. She knew exactly what worked and didn't. She knew not to smile because of those rotten teeth. She knew she had a very pretty complexion. And she knew she was a soft person, so those toga-like dresses worked for her. And it has to be said, had, as Pierre has mentioned, she was very popular. She was a seductress. She wanted to be loved. And it, that drove him, a bit, Napoleon, a bit mad, but it suited him. She was really inclusive. And that was part of this thing of, you know, that way that Parisians are not always welcoming. And she realised that soft, that voice, and she welcomed strangers because that was fantastic for the international reputation. It was all word of mouth. As far as um, her look, she really, I, I feel she really had style and confidence. And she created something new, didn't she? That yes, neoclassical yes. style was new. And if you think where she wore the tiara a la Josephine, which was half you know, halfway down her forehead. She knew exactly what would look good. Soft curls, emphasis on those eyes, the skin, and sort of less hair. Less teeth. Yes, less teeth. But she really, I feel she really did. If you see her work with Nito, she had that amazing thing. There was a sort of alchemy in that relationship. You know, you have Chaumet, which is known for its nature, its way of playing with nature. And she was a, a nature girl. Do you think, as you said, that sort of toga style, that um, neoclassical style, using diaphanous muslins and tulle, do you think that she was seeking a sense of freedom in the sort of Greek and Roman look going back to her simpler origins? I think she was more following her husband, who was like, this is the deal, and it suited her. I don't think Josephine, in the early years... Let's not forget she had the upper hand at first. She knew how society, as Pierre's mentioned, she understood how society worked. He was a bit of a, he was, he was brilliant, a genius, but a socially perhaps not where she was. And she came in, she was all soft. So if you think all those muslins, all that beautiful silks, they went with that voice. They went with that softness. I sense that her goal was goddess. But there was also, because she wasn't, she was more charming, this was a charming seductress, so she was more of a sort of a seductive shepherdess, but it worked. And that the whole tiara, Nito's tiara, gave her grandeur. So it sort of went together. And that also, we have to say, that Parisian thing of up and down, that clever way of making it all, you know, balanced. But I do feel she was born with an exceptional eye, which you see at Malmaison and you see in those ports. She knew exactly what she was doing. I mean, at the time, she was envied all through Europe, wasn't she? She was, there was um, a new magazine, as magazines had started then, Le Journal des Dames et des Modes, and she was, there were pictures of Josephine on virtually every page as everyone wanted to emulate this new mm. style, didn't they? Yeah. She had, she was definitely, and as Piers... So beautifully put it, they were power animals, but they didn't, you know, they had different goals. 
which worked. It was the most extraordinary relationship. I mean, you do feel that it was very, there was this genius, but he, she had a certain genius too. She had a genius of appearance, genius of welcoming, and a genius for jewels. As you know, Carol, you know, you know, chic is really personality, and how better expressed than jewels? I mean, when you think of those fantastic personalities expressing their personalities via jewels, and I think that was the case with Josephine. Yes, I think she really, you sense this sensual softness and. And Nito was inspired and she was inspired. It was a sort of marvellous relationship, really. And she was, uh, as you said, she liked fashion, she liked jewels, and she certainly liked them a lot. Napoleon called it her mad extravagance. I mean, in one year, apparently she bought 900 dresses, five times as many as Marie Antoinette would have. Um, so Josephine shopped seriously. Can you tell us a bit about this extravagance? Well, I, what did I do know is he got so frustrated. He said, OK, you can only, there's only going to be one jeweller from now on. And that was Nito. And I think the bills, much as he loved him, the bills sort of horrified him. It, that made me laugh. I thought it was very funny. I mean, it's funny, this thing that he, she had him and she was doing her job, but paying the bills, she really was a shopaholic, the Imelda Marcos of tiaras, the Imelda Marcos of dresses, whatever. But she, what was interesting about her, you, it's all very exquisite. She couldn't resist. He couldn't, Napoleon couldn't resist Josephine and Josephine couldn't resist the goods. So you've talked about Nito a little bit. And for people who don't know, um, Marie-Athene Nito was the forerunner of the House of Chaumet in Paris, so basically the two and a half centuries of master jewellers. And um, Napoleon um, commissioned him, made him the court jeweller to his court. And they really commissioned a lot. I actually, I found this quote from um, Kate Williams' book about Josephine that said, like any addict, she described her as an addict. The empress always needed the new and forgot the old. She had sometimes paid 12,000 francs for a shawl and then used it as a blanket for her dog. She'd wear an expensive gown for a day and give it to her ladies or maids who promptly sold it. She snapped up diamond shawls, silks and jewellery and trinkets and never asked the price and barely remembered what she had bought. She never wore the same pair of stockings twice. She bought... A thousand pairs of gloves a year and when she wanted a fresh pair they were bought on a silver tray this was a grand life um natasha i think you've described them i saw in the show me book of tiaras you described napoleon and josephine as a 19th century version of the rock and roll power couple and i guess jewels were essential to create this power and this persona absolutely because jewels they caused immediate envy you can imagine everyone these other women seeing her, and I think there was a touch of, yes, she was the addict and loved a beautiful thing, but I also think there was a touch of revenge, slightly, of, you see now, I can have, what I, you know, I can have whatever I want. And yet, what was marvellous, she did have this fabulous taste, but it was a bit nuts. Yet again, it further created this um, myth, legend, this legendary couple. But you do, you can see them later on being in a Rolls Royce and arriving. I mean, it, it was extraordinary the way the limits, and he allowed it because he was so in love. And, and, and of course, unless you make tons of money, you do at that period, during that period, you did need someone to finance it. And I guess the tiara was another of these ways she set a fashion. I mean, the tiara wasn't really used until Napoleon and Josephine created that desire. Yes. I mean, we don't see it on Marie Antoinette, do we? And yet, people always associate the tiara with Josephine. And again, it really became her... He insisted um, that people wear it, and he insisted on the jewels. It was a political move. This is what was so clever about Napoleon and Josephine. They used everything, and the jewels became a political move because all the, they sort of eclipsed everyone else with all the gold and the diamonds and the pearls and the cameos. And people remembered it. And it's a way of harking back, as we said, to, to wanting to take the absolute authority that Roman, um, the Romans had or Caesar had and 
the tiara became a way of asserting that absolute power. Diana Scaresbrook, who worked as a historian and, and um, translated and traced all the Shomi archives, said um, in her book Tiara, more than any other jewel, it was the glittering head ornaments that transformed the women of the Parvenu Bonaparte family into royalty, which I thought was quite a marvellous way of putting it, that they immediately were elevated. Well, they say it's, it's, it's um, a, a dialogue with the sky. The French have that expression, dialogue avec le ciel. And there is an instant, and there were these Murau women who did not like Josephine. They referred to her as the, as the old bag, but they liked the trappings. I think that's the thing. It did look fantastic, all this. And sort of, if you see, it looked an amazing, as we sure we'll go into, that famous, the coronation portrait. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. The Jacques-Louis David portrait that hangs in the Louvre, which was commissioned by Napoleon to set the moment of his coronation in the eyes of the world. And I guess what comes out of it is just the sheer sparkle. Yes, I just wanted to add a few words. Society was based on merit and glory, and it wasn't based on birthrights anymore. So Josephine and Napoleon were a model for the study of society. They could show people that wherever you came from, you could actually go upwards in society. Thank you. Yes, Pierre, that's a very good point. And um, I did ask you um, a while ago about what your favourite piece, and I think uh, you said it was one of the tiaras. Yes, yes. So my favourite tiara is the diadem of sheaves of wheat, because it represents the youth, where a new, rather younger generation arrives, a new movement which effectively wants to challenge and to change the world. Indeed, the world changed with them. At the same time, they embodied this change. These people are at the same time the inclination of the change and this change itself. So everything mixes together for this new era and new time to happen. And I find that this diadem of wheat by Nito symbolises in itself a birth, even a rebirth of this new world. And with this movement we can see, with this symbol of wheat, the strength of the generation. It makes something that you don't yet know exactly, but it makes today's world much more open and accessible. Natasha, what I'd love to know is that we talked that when she died, she had 270 per heure, and she had these extraordinary sets of jewellery. Can you describe to me what would make up a per heure for a woman at that time in society? Yes, they would, you, would have, you would have the um, tiara, you'd have the comb in the hair, You'd have, um, it's really everything apart from rings. So you would have the comb, crown perhaps, um, then the necklace, then the pendant earrings, two bracelets, and um, perhaps a, a belt buckle and... A brooch? A brooch, and a big brooch, and a brooch. It's the, it was the full set, but quite... Uh, they covered the body. A, a substantial amount of jewellery just in one set. Yes. So all this um, commissioning of jewellery, it's quite useful to sort of set the scene into which um, Napoleon and Josephine arrived because obviously the country had been in turmoil and financial crisis for many years through the French Revolution and the time after that made a jeweller's life rather hellish. I mean, their livelihood disappeared overnight. It relied on the rich clientele and the aristocrats who vanished. Um, and so I think part of Napoleon's role that we now still talk about, and Natasha would probably say is still alive in Paris in the centre of the luxury arts, that Napoleon heralded this dramatic revival of fashion and jewellery in France. And I thought, Pierre, could you tell me a couple of the steps that he took to restore France to become a leader of fashion. As he launched his reign to be as brilliant as possible, he became the emperor of kings in Europe. As a result, all these palaces, all the escorts must be as magnificent as possible. For example, Napoleon had 52 palaces and therefore to impress, he furnished them well. As the court frequented them, it was going to be necessary to have goldsmiths and jewellers all kinds of artists and art that worked exclusively for the regime. And so the capital is in Paris, but also Lyon for silk. 
There will be a renaissance of French luxury because it is encouraged massively by Napoleon, because all the artists and craftsmen of the time were for Napoleon and his court for the representation of the regime. It's the face of its luxuries. This economic manner effectively revives the luxury craft industry. He put Paris back in the centre, and at last it was in a more democratic way. It was now accessible to everyone. It was no longer just luxury reserved only for the court of Versailles, but for the Napoleon courts and beyond, because the court of Napoleon integrated all the notabilities based on merit. So it included a wide range of people who were enthused by this renaissance of luxury. So we had both the means to revive this industry, but also, if I may say so, the customers and clientele are rather much wider than it was under the old regime. This is the basis of today's French luxury. I read also that Napoleon banned Josephine from wearing the same dress twice, that she changed three times a day, that women at court had to appear in new dresses, that he blocked up the chimneys at the Tuileries so they were a little cold, so they had to order heavy brocades and satins. Is that also how he got um, he got the fashion industry back working, Natasha? No, I think he went. What's a, there's a wonderful um, description of someone arriving at Malmaison and being very impressed by, and they, they, people were very impressed by the graciousness, the gracefulness of Josephine. And he said, I arrived in this room and there she was and her jewellery matched the room. And I, it sounds like they change four times. Four times a day. A day. But the idea of having jewellery which set off the room is pretty fantastic. Can you describe for all of us the statement that she made at the coronation uh, what she wore and um, the, the white. She chose white, didn't she? And um, embroidered with golden bees. Can you describe that uh, that look that she chose? Well, it was uh, it was high waisted and it made her look goddess like. And it was a sort of I think, as Piers mentioned, it was aspirational for others. It was look look where look what what can happen. And look how extraordinary we are, again, on merit. It was slightly heavenly. Her appearance was slightly heavenly. But also all the women. It was a sense of all the women behind this extraordinary portrait. You get a sense of all the women, all the people involved. Immense wealth, immense devotion. And Napoleon ahead, all this sort of, yet not fawning, this extraordinary... It's a, a neoclassical vision. The bee was important, wasn't it, Pierre? Wasn't the bee very, very important as um, another of these symbols that he took from the world of antiquity? The bee is not from antiquity. In fact, it's a Merovingian symbol. Because when the tomb of King Childeric from the Middle Ages was opened, it was found to contain golden jewelled bees. Napoleon wanted to use this symbol of the ancient Merovingians dynasty as his own, and so adopted this symbol of the bee. Napoleon has three points of references. He usually referred to Rome or to the antiquity, but also to Charlemagne with the crown, the Carolinians, and the third is the bee with the Merovingians. What he never uses is the symbol of the fleur-de-lis, which was the symbol of the previous dynasty, the Bourbons and the Capetian. He wants to embody the dynasty that replaces the previous dynasty his being the fourth dynasty. So, Pierre, you have um, one of the drawings of showing him being crowned emperor by Jacques-Louis de David. Was this one one of the ones he would have had? Because he created that moment, didn't he? And then he and Napoleon basically wanted it revised because they didn't want the image of Napoleon crowning himself to go around the world, did they? Yes, the eagle. Of course there is the eagle. And there's also a lot of other symbols. But the main inspiration is from antiquity. Just like any other emperor in the end. You had, for example, the Legion of Honour, which are just legions. The main inspiration is indeed in antiquity, Rome. It is even said that Napoleon was in a way the last Roman emperor who ever existed. In Jacques-Louis David's painting, in the first version, it's a very exceptional drawing where we see Napoleon crowning himself, but his gesture was funny and judged as not elegant and a bit self-centred. It maybe wasn't the best move and wasn't going to give a good image. 
So both Josephine and the painter suggested to Napoleon to change the scene and include the coronation of Josephine, which is both a gesture and much more elegant. And like this, Josephine is installed in the foreground. And that made the success of the painting, this magnificent coronation of Josephine, that has become one of the intrigues of Josephine. One of its successes is that not only has Josephine managed to be at the centre of this ceremony, since it was not necessarily planned, but that she would be crowned, because the last Queen of France was Marie de Medici. Josephine was once again the centre of everything. It goes back a long way to Henry IV, who was crowned like that. She had managed it to be placed centre of the ceremony, and moreover, to be in the centre of the picture. So yes, it was ambitious. That's so interesting. I didn't realise it was her that suggested that to Napoleon and David. Because, as you say, it's so clever. Because firstly, it would have been an improper act that went out around the world to, to go to make the Pope irrelevant by grabbing the crown for himself, who was there to crown him. And also, as you say, it makes Napoleon... Um, look very devoted to his empress. Yes, yes, Napoleon was very devoted to Josephine and to the empire. He said he would almost rather lose his throne than not have her at the ceremony. What was funny was that the ceremony on December 2nd, 1804, was the coronation of Napoleon, but it also became the most important moment in Josephine's life. This is very clear. Moreover, on that day, we know that she was radiant and she was the happiest of all possible women because she was triumphant before eternity. And it's a ritual that will be not taken away from her anymore, that she acquired with great struggle against the family of Napoleon. Of course, she deserved it. So I just wanted to add for the anecdote that as Napoleon is leaning forward in the corrected version of the painting, there is space left between that of Napoleon and the characters that were already drawn. This space is filled by a character that was obviously not there on the day of the coronation because, in fact, it is Julius Caesar, painted just behind Napoleon. <laughs> Another way to channel his, his obsession with emperors of ancient Rome was his interest in sort of ancient artefacts that were being discovered at the time in the Roman sites of Herculaneum and Pompeii. And... Um, Weren't cameos and intaglios brought back from his Italian campaigns and it started this interest in carved gems on hard stones and um, that was really incorporated into the style of, of their jewellery that Josephine and Napoleon began to commission. Indeed. In fact, the crown that she wore in Milan because she became a queen of Italy, Napoleon is king of Italy and she is the queen. This crown was cut with shell in a fabulous way and has antique cameos because this is the era when the excavations in Pompeii and Herculaneum had already begun and then the excavation in Egypt also. At these sites, antique cameos appear and so they are taken and as they start to circulate, they are integrated into jewellery. There is also the famous Gothic belt of Empress Marie-Louise, Napoleon's second wife on which sits an antique Hellenistic cameo adorned with the imperial symbols of the bee given by Pauline Borghese, Napoleon's sister. There's a, well, the wonderful cameos in um, the hardstone malachite, aren't there, Natasha? Do you think um, that's quite, quite a heavy thing to wear? Did she, did, did she wear those things well, those um, big cameo pearls? Yes, I mean, I think she really loved, she understood, because they were so delicate. I think the whole delicacy, and it must have been... I mean, to be able to do cameos in a hard stone like that, the, I mean, the craftsmanship and also the pearls, it all goes with her, that conant. She was very poetic. And I think cameos go furthered her grace. I think it really was that. She was this gracious, but, but crafty and, and marvellous. And all these portraits, you know, the paintings on porcelain, and you see how that wonderful... Um, cameo, extraordinary cameo tiara, which remains in the Swedish royal family, which was originally worn by her granddaughter, Josephine. I mean, it sort of continues. I mean, it remains. We're, we associate cameos with Josephine as well as everything else. And I guess um, creating these jewels between Napoleon and Josephine, that Nietzsche was sort of witness to the love story, and I wondered if you could tell me a bit about the importance of their sentimental pieces that they commissioned. 
because they really told the love story between them, didn't they? Using um, acrostic jewellery to spell out how they loved each other and the names between them. Of course, especially with the jeweller Nito, the official jeweller to the Emperor Napoleon, who was someone of their generation. And he survived with the revolution, and he was also there when the empire was founded. Nito died in 1809, the year Napoleon and Josephine separated. His son took over, but he decided to stop as well after the defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. And so the father and the son were not only witnesses of this time, they are also artisans in this movement. The jewels were always there to embody this sort of thriving reign, and the last story between Napoleon and Josephine as well. The Maison Nito would later take the name Chaumet. And Nito wanted to portray an environment, both private and intimate, and of this singularly extraordinary love story. It is indeed a tool, serving an exceptional craftsman who is Nito. While at the same time, Nito was capable of understanding Josephine and Napoleon because they were of the same generation, but also because they knew each other. And so, he was able to create this sense of modernity, which will remain and is still there today. Finally, I just wanted to add that we are in the early 19th century. Josephine and Napoleon perfectly embody the expression of feelings. In the past, feelings were hidden. They were hidden in that they were kept truly in the private home, intimate even. From the 19th century, with the beginning of the Romanticism feeling, all the feelings, all of a sudden, were not supposed to be private anymore. They were to be shown, to be expressed, and they were even more beautiful if they were expressed by the people. And what is the most sentimental piece that expresses this love? I would say that they would be the love letters that Napoleon sent to Josephine. Because we have this living proof and evidence of a passionate, very sentimental young general. This lively writing carries the weight tortured with sentimentality, totally dependent on love. And we can see from this testimony, Napoleon was completely dependent on Josephine, the woman he loved, and this is in complete opposition to the environment in which he was evolving. And so in these letters, he just puts all of his feelings on paper, and with the calligraphy and his sequences of words is the style in which we get a general idea of what Napoleon's persona in character was. And in the end, on these papers, you can see all the love that he had for Josephine, which became eternal because it not only overcame obstacles, it overcame time. They're very beautiful, aren't they? The language is kind of extraordinary that he uses. Um, something amused me, actually, Natasha, as us both being English women. I, I compared... Um, uh, a love letter sent by Napoleon's rival, Lord Horatio Nelson, to his paramour, Lady Emma, Emma Hamilton, in which he said, I thought about you so much last night I couldn't eat pudding. <laughs> Enough said. No wonder I live in Paris. The Englishman and his romance. I mean, it absolutely sums it up. <laughs> and now I thought, compare that to, to Napoleon, who says... Ever since I left you, I've been sad. I'm only happy when by your side. Ceaselessly, I recall your kisses, your tears, your enchanting jealousy, and the charms of the incomparable Josephine keep constantly alight a bright and burning flame in my heart and senses. Now that's a love letter. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he was a frustrated writer? So both Napoleon and Josephine were very jealous and very possessive. So obviously they really wanted to own one another. Totally. And so it's true Josephine is someone who wanted to possess Napoleon completely and Napoleon wanted to possess Josephine entirely. They have excessive possessiveness and jealousy. So obviously because they don't want to share the other with anyone, it is a message that is very strong and that is expressed on both sides. But he is someone who indeed wanted to be a writer or a historian. He is someone who is in the movement of his time, but he also wants to be a writer. He knows how to hold a pen for war, for politics and for love. Nowadays, Napoleon is one of the most famous authors of love letters in the French language. And we can see why. Um, and I think um, having talked about her addictive nature, Natasha, she also was really, um, uh, she became quite a talented botanist, didn't she? She really had an addictive obsession about roses and plants, didn't she? Yes, I mean, you, they still, regarding 
um, plants and flowers of that period, they still refer to her books, which is pretty impressive. She was serious. She really was passionate. And from that, we can tell that she was, whatever she did, she was both obsessive but very, very good. I mean, really had an eye and interest and curiosity. I think that was what was extraordinary. Just as he was brilliant, I think he was also very turned on by her very curious mind. Yes. She continued to be very curious. That moted everything else. And I guess long-suffering in the bills that that ensued. But remember, they stopped when he decided he wanted an offspring, the rat dropped her and divorced her. That was sad. But even when they were at war with Britain, he'd give dispensation for a nurseryman from a London supplier of plants to bring over a particularly delicate tree and enter, enter France. So he was very long-suffering in delivering what she wanted. She was very indulged. <laughs> but what's fantastic is people still refer to them. Yeah, so what, what for you is her greatest legacy? Her greatest legacy, I find her incredibly modern, really a, a sort of first... I find her much more modern than Marie Antoinette. First of all, she's not tragic. There seems to be this obsession that as a woman to continue has to be tragic. And to a certain point, Josephine wasn't tragic and was wildly modern and was... Um, Napoleon found her equal, I feel. Um, and remained the great love of one of the geniuses of the 19th century, who continued. And do you think she, she um, created a fashion in jewels that is still looked at and regarded? I think she displayed a healthy appetite, and I think many <laughs> looked to her in that way. I mean, apparently, when Jackie, Anas, Jackie Kennedy came to France, she was desperate to go to Malmaison. And she was very inspired by the world she created. I think what was incredible about Josephine, because she was indulged by a loving Napoleon, she was able to create this incredibly exalted kingdom, if you want, which included plants, countless trees, jewels and everything. She, it was sort of uh, fairy tale like And I feel that people aspire to that. And still very intrigued by it. Yes. Pierre, what do you think her greatest legacy was? When John F. Kennedy went on a state trip to Paris in 1961, such was the interest and media attention in his wife that he described himself as the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris. And Napoleon, too, could have described himself as the man who was accompanying Josephine. Because indeed, Josephine has left something timeless because she drew from the best sources of antiquity and exoticism. There was the old regime, etc., but there is a myriad many influences which originate today. Napoleon conquered Europe with his armies, through wars. I think Josephine still has a lot of influence all over Europe, and she conquered here by botany, by plants. One of the examples today among the thousands of Josephine's legacies is from Nice. Josephine acclimated the mimosa, which comes from Australia. Thanks to Josephine, the city of Nice in February becomes all yellow with the mimosa plant. It's one of the most delicate and beautiful legacies existing in history, I think. She also introduced black swans to, I think, was the first to have black swans in France. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And when you think of it, the, the, the wheat tiara, I mean, over the years, we've had not just Shomé recreating the, the image of the wheat in their jewellery. Chanel had done it, Verdura did it, Vulco de Verdura in Italy. Every so often, this wheat fashion recurs, um, which she began. Are you, I think that you get a sense with Josephine that she was over the top, but with so much taste and such an interesting eye. And what I love... She also had a sense of humour. I mean, there's a great story where apparently after the divorce, and perhaps Pierre may correct me, they only saw each other once. She and Napoleon only saw each other once a year after the divorce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oui, oui. And she, she put on a bit of weight. And he uh, said, you know, darling, you've put, you put on quite a bit of weight. And she turned to him and said, now that I'm not the empress, I can do what I want. Which I feel shows a wonderfully independent, modern attitude. Yes, you are absolutely right. 
She was a woman who was very proud and very independent. It is paradoxical because she married the most persistent and dominating man of our time. But if Napoleon kept the bond with her for more than 20 years practically, it is because she was a strong and independent personality. Now Josephine was the only person who was able to really speak her mind in front of Napoleon and oppose him, men and women included. She was truly his alter ego. And, I mean, basically his last word was Josephine. Pierre, do you think this was a love story that really never ended? On the last day of his life, he said some last words about his son, about the army, but also Josephine. It is also said that he had a dream. Josephine had died six years prior, and in his dream, Josephine said, come to me, join me. And so a few days later, he died. It was reported, I think that nevertheless it's quite accurate, that he thought a lot about her. And we must never forget that after Waterloo, he went to Chateau de Malmaison, formerly the residence of Empress Josephine and Napoleon's last residence in France. And he went into Josephine's room, that you can still visit today, in which Josephine died, and he began to cry. So once again, his feeling is expressed. Beyond death, he was very attached. And I guess if Napoleon's set out, his initial thought was to make his court as glittering as any in Europe, he did increase the magnificence of France in the way that in 1791, an inventory shows the jewels comprised of under 10,000 stones, but by 1814, the collection had swollen to 65,000. So he certainly did that with jewels. And um, I guess, do you think, Pierre, that his his um, empire would have been less magnificent without the jewellery? Do you think that was crucial? Of course, the jewel was the supreme ornament of all. You know, it was at once sumptuous, but also charming and elegant. Everything had to be beautiful, and at the centre of that, at the very heart of that, we have the jewels and tiaras, and they were the final touch. And so these, without the jewels, would not have had the same effect on people and on society. And it was very important for the regime, because everything was supposed to mix together. Finally, we understand this environment, through both intimate objects of the court, but also the situation in Paris, Place Vendôme, etc. So, Natasha, you've said that um, Josephine was an inspiration to Jacqueline Onassis, Kennedy Onassis. Um, Where do you think she stands in the lexicon of global style icons now? It's funny, I think she's been, I think there's a return. There's definitely a return because there's a simplicity. And also I think it's interesting because I think before that someone had to have a tragic life Marilyn Monroe. In a way, Jackie Kennedy did have a tragic life. And um, Marie Antoinette. And I feel now, because of everything that's going on, that there may be a return of Josephine. You think, well done, this is a woman who really enjoyed her life, who was devoted to her children, which was unusual for that time, who made sure that they um, went on and married extremely well. But I think there's something very modern about Josephine because she did not tolerate nonsense from uh, Napoleon. And I think that is modern. And we, mu- we will see more of that because of that. And I think we'll, I feel that she'll, there's going to be a return to Josephine just because she was modern and she, was, she had her standards and was treated well by her husband who was madly in love. And the paradox is, although we've been talking about the accoutrements and what she wore a lot here, basically she was successful because she was clever and she used her brain and she became smart. And I think that's quite an inspiration for young women now. Totally. She was completely, she had an interest and she found out more about it. She had the means to buy it, but she was someone you see, there was um, a method behind the addiction and madness and it wasn't managed was but I think she really did she was a very very clever wily um woman who who used everything and also coped with a genius a true partnership exactly one wouldn't one would have been less without the other a true partnership and I think that's what makes 
them a modern couple, actually. Voila. No, I think it's interesting. I do think there's so many more books on Marie Antoinette, so many more books on Marilyn Monroe, so many more books on Jackie. I personally would like to see more books on Josephine because she did have a, this equal partnership. She had many interests which continue. She also had great taste, but Anne was a, a wonderful mother, a wonderful mother. Or Taunton and Eugenie were devoted to her. It wasn't this. Yeah. I think that's unusual. It is. And the amazing thing is that they got away with it. This profligacy that Marie Antoinette died for, and yet they got away with it and just did it again, but even more so. Well, uh, <laughs> that's kind of extraordinary. Perfect conclusion. I felt she she had an easier time of it. Poor Napoleon locked in Saint Helena, which is so still so far. It's still so far. So how far could it have been in his day? <laughs> but I'm mean, an incredible couple, and as you put it, Carol, on equal terms, which is always wonderful and inspiring. It is indeed the perfect alliance in every way. And after all, politics did not kill it, but even strengthened it. And it was proof, if I may say, of the ultimate love, because they wanted to perpetuate themselves beyond everything, beyond politics and even beyond death. They remained united through eternity and posterity. And still are the inspiration for Paris. Mm. Oui, oui, toujours. The ultimate inspiration for what happens now in Paris around the Place Vendôme. Well, thank you for sharing it, Pierre. And thank you um, for taking time when you're so busy. I, I hope you can come in Paris soon. <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you for joining us, Natasha, and giving us your Parisian take on Empress Josephine. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Pierre, as well. Merci beaucoup. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash ifjulescouldtalk. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. You'll find us on Instagram, where you can view images of the jewellery we talk about. And please subscribe to the podcast feed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where we'd love a rating and a comment. Thank you, and join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. We'll be talking about the secret life of colour with the author of the book, Cassia Sinclair. And I'm delighted that Lucia Silvestri, the creative director of Bulgari, will be joining us. In particular, we'll be talking about the history of blue and the fact that it is the world's most favourite colour. So don't miss it. Please join us then. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Woolton. Mm-hmm.